our featured bbbgive.org accredited charity seal holders for this edition are AARP Foundation, American Leprosy Missions, Caring Bridge. To find out more about these and other bbbgive.org accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by bbbgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. This will be the first of a two-part show. Today, we're going to speak with a woman who has done some amazing things in her career. It's the only way to say it. And she has taken on a challenge recently to lead a regional fund in Jacksonville, Florida, which we want to talk about. And I want to talk about why she took this challenge on in particular, because it is an interesting one. But she's also known because of her pioneering work in crowdfunding. She also spent some work with the World Bank. And she has been, in my opinion, a leader, not only in the work that she's been doing, but in the nonprofit sector at large. And so we're honored to have with us today, Mari Kuraishi. Mari is the president and CEO of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. She was the co-founder of an amazing organization called Global Giving that has connected hundreds of thousands of donors to projects around the world, raising nearly a billion dollars over that time. She has also pioneered and helped us think through how organizations can receive feedback for their work to help align the work with the needs of people who are being served. And she's just an incredible individual, someone who I often love to be around, although I don't get to be around her as much as I'd like. But when I'm around Mari, I always learn something new. And this is something that I am expecting to achieve today. You know, anybody who you can go around who speaks like four or five languages, including Russian and Japanese and what other languages are you speaking these days? <laughs> English, of course. English, Italian, French. And she's a historian by education. So she's done a lot in her in her young life. And we're just honored, Mari, to have you here. So welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you for having me, Art. It's an honor to be here. Mari, so much you've done in your life. I guess the first thing I want to just find out is, like I ask a lot of our guests, how did you end up in the nonprofit sector? 
I ended up in the nonprofit sector because I ended up at the World Bank. And I ended up at the World Bank purely by accident. Not in the kind of random accident type of way, but more because I was training to be a Sovietologist. It was 1991. I was in a PhD program. And my country analysis, my unit of analysis fell apart. Soviet Union was no longer the Soviet Union. It was now all these different republics. And my discipline, political science, had failed to predict the single most important thing that happened to the Soviet Union. So I thought it was a good time to leave academics and find a job. And there were new jobs opening up in the post-Soviet field. One of the ones was at the World Bank. I had no idea what the World Bank did, but it was located in Washington, D.C., where I was. And they seemed to be interested in my Russia focus. So I got hired there. And then I got involved in country work in Russia, eventually figured out what the World Bank did. And from there, I went on to do corporate strategy for the World Bank after they sent me to business school for 11 weeks. And from there, we started thinking about what is the business of the World Bank? And were there different ways to deliver what the World Bank delivered? So that's when my co-founder, Dennis Whittle, and I left the World Bank to create Global Giving. So the path to the nonprofit world was really not, I believe, in nonprofits, and I'm going to go into the sector. It was like, I want to do a specific thing now that I'm in this field. And the way to do it was via the nonprofit sector. And you did it. So let's talk about the early days of global giving. Young people come to me a lot, and I'm sure they come to you too, being a founder saying, I want to start a nonprofit. And the first thing I usually say to them is, are you sure? <laughs> because it's hard. And, you know, we have about 70, 80,000 new nonprofits created every year. And it's great because, you know, we have a, a system of government that allows the free association of people and the forming of these organizations when people think there's something that they can do to improve our society, which is, is wonderful, right? But it's hard. It's not easy. It's not easy to get funding for your ideas. It's not easy to find people to work along with you. And what we see a lot of times is that people will start something, realize how difficult it is, and then the organization will languish for some period of time and, and not much actually happens. But that wasn't the case with you and Dennis. What was it that made you say, yes, we're going to do this. And yes, we think we can be successful with it. Well, to the answer to, yeah, you know, we're going to do this is that we had spent many years in a system that had some of the smartest people in the world. They, they recruit you know, incredibly qualified people, a diverse group of people for that matter, uh, from all over the world who were then expected to make loans to a lesser extent administer grant programs to make 
lasting change happen in the countries of the developing world. That modality, though, was very, very bureaucratic. As an international organization, it had a lot of masters. And over the years, a lot, I mean, it's like barnacles on a boat. You just kind of get more and more rules put on you. And the pursuit of the goal was harder and harder. And it was also a system that was set up in a in a very top-down system. It was the countries of the North, the, the rich countries, defining how aid should be delivered and what it should be spent on in the countries of the South. And you know, I don't think I truly understand understood to what extent sort of colonial mindset kind of existed in the World Bank until I sort of thought about the fact that my first the boss of my first boss had been a colonially appointed governor of Papua New Guinea. Not that that was inherently wrong, but I mean within his lifetime, he had sort of bridged the colonial to the post-colonial world. And so it basically sort of did not allow the countries that were taking on these loans to define what should be done. There was a presumption they didn't know what should be done. And therefore the staff, the very technocratic staff of the World Bank should define it. and. With that mindset, it sort of did not allow leveraging the creativity and the dedication that we would see in so many of the countries we visited. So, you know, 2000, 2001, the dot com boom, technology seemed to be changing everything. We're like, no, you know, surely we can showcase the incredible work that is being done by people on the ground because we know people are getting things done against incredible odds. If we showcase this, then people will support it. Now, I don't know how many times you've heard an internet person say, if we build it, they will come. The truth (laughs) is they don't. So there were some lean years. And to answer your second question about what allowed us to succeed, I don't know exactly. I think part of it is luck. And we were willing to weather some very lean years where we didn't take salaries. We had colleagues who didn't take salaries. And we just, in some ways, we gutted it out. We just sort of outlasted the lean years. What did you learn in those lean years that made you shift to something that ultimately did allow you to get the funding and support that you could be a full-time paid staff person? I think we learned to, we could only hire incredibly young people because they were cheap, right? (laughs) Okay. And so it taught us to trust young people. And then then that was broadly consistent with our own theory of change, right? Like trust the people on the ground, trust the people you have who are working with your clients. So it taught us to trust young people. It taught us to be very creative within very limited means. It taught us to, if not 
shoot for the moon in, at the outset, then find the lowest hanging fruit and work on that and use that as a launching pad for the next step. And really taught us sort of the value of incremental improvement. You can't sort of sit back, but you can make small incremental improvements that will add up to something one day. So this is a fun question. So what was some of that lower hanging fruit in the beginning, in the early days? Well, we noticed that nobody was really giving money on the internet in 2003. People were thought it, putting your credit card number online was sketch, right? eBay and was selling those uh, stuffed animals. Amazon was selling books and CDs. But these are very niche audiences. And we needed to reach the general public. So we're, then we thought, okay, well, where does the public give? At work. There were all these workplace giving programs. So we're like, okay, then we need to go start talking to companies. Well, it looked like low-hanging fruit. And eventually it, it worked. But a sales-driven process targeting large companies that have workplace giving programs, that also turned out to be a longer road than we thought. In the meantime, the tsunami in Southeast Asia happened. And for the first time, we noticed people were coming to our site by typing in help fishermen in Indonesia. And so the concept of where do people give? Well, they give in the workplace and they give when disasters happen and disasters hit the news. So those two things, as sort of random and it wasn't something we had in our heads when we started, but they have turned out to be the mainstays of global giving. Interesting. So one, one last question. So when you think about workplace giving today, there've been so many changes, lots of technology at play in workplace giving. A lot of the engines that we used to see in the workplace are not as robust as they used to be. So how do you, how would you say global giving would have succeeded or not if it had started, let's say, five years ago, given the changes in workplace? I mean, was workplace that big of a deal that you would have had to find another way to do it? Or, or was it something that would have happened probably anyway? I think we... We started talking to the large companies at a time when they were very, very much in that United Way combined campaign mode. Right. And, you know, they kind of looked at us and said, well, why do we need you? Mm -hmm. And we're like, because you have a global workplace, you have employees who have come from very many different countries. And currently the United Way is all about local giving near your offices you need options. And so kind of listened to us and said, well, maybe we need you, but maybe we don't. And then eventually as the times shifted, they're like, yeah, we do need global uh, options. And also their workplace was getting, uh, workforce was getting younger. And they were like, I don't want to give to a combined pot. 
where I don't get to say exactly who gets the money and for what. I want choices. Younger people were getting used to more and more choice, and we could offer it. So it was, it was a timing thing. Yes, we were there early, which is why it took us so darn long to make the set sale. I think in one case, I started talking to a company nine years before they actually turned around. So the ability to sort of outlast them was, was key. But it was helpful to have been around at a time when they weren't quite sure, what do you have to offer? The, the, let's just say the field was not crowded. Right. Well, I love that you remind us how long sometimes these things can take before they actually hit success. And I also mentioned that to people who ask me when they say, I want to start a nonprofit because they think immediately, well, we're going to have success. Of course, we have a great idea and everyone's going to want to fund this, support it, and we can help a lot of people. But you mentioned nine years, <laughs> you know, and it can take that long, right? It can take a while before your idea really grabs hold or maybe before the, you, before times catch up to your futuristic sort of idea. And that is a great example of that when you talk about nine years before the business community caught up to you, essentially, and other circumstances were such that uh, you could be successful. The next question I ask, and I, maybe this will be the last one on global giving. You have a unique, or you had a unique, and you probably still do, organization of local entities. And I always wanted to ask you, how in the world did you cobble together such a local community-based organization in so many places outside of the United States? What was the secret sauce to you doing that? The secret sauce is that these organizations all wanted to tap into the philanthropic market in the U.S. When we started Global Giving, the first version went up in 2002. And remember I said, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. And donors didn't come. The nonprofits did from all over the world. So they were hungry and they were looking. And when we sort of got word out by word of mouth, literally, right? This is not, hmm. we did not have money for advertising. We did not have right. any of that. And this is before search engine optimization. And right. So, how did you do it? It was just these nonprofits were connected to each other and when they heard about it they found us wow and we kept getting more and more organizations that wanted on wow amazing all right well today you know global giving is a global force <laughs> there's no two ways of describing it you just hired a new ceo although you've been gone now for what is it like four years i want four say. years yeah and so uh, you had a person in between. Now you have uh, Victoria Vrena, who is a good friend of both of ours. And we know Vic is going to tear it up over there as well. So they're in really good hands now. And anybody who doesn't know about Global Giving, I would suggest you take a look at globalgiving.org. 
and see all the amazing things they're doing over there. While Mari keeps an eye on it as now an outside observer, and uh, will you always be a founder? Well, Mari, let's end this first episode here, and we'll come back in episode two, which will air next week, and we can talk about the work you're doing at the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and also the work that you and Dennis started around feedback 10 years ago. So I want to thank all of you for listening, and I hope you'll come back here next week and hear part two with Mari Kuraishi. And if this is the first time you're hearing about this show, I hope you will subscribe to the podcast because it helps us build audience, which you can do on all major podcast platforms. And if you want to donate to the podcast, you can make a gift at give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G, and we will put that money to great use. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.